Welcome to Genomics Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a podcast series brought to you by the American Society of Hematology, the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society, and the France Foundation. This activity is supported by independent educational grants from Estellas, Abvi, Daichi, Sankyo, Pharmacyclics, and Illumina. As medical professionals, it's important that we stay up to date on the latest developments in genomic testing and understand how to interpret those test results, as well as select the appropriate therapeutic agents to manage hematologic malignancies. This podcast will focus on therapeutic testing for acute myeloid leukemia, or AML. I am your host, Dr. Michael Diaz. I'm a community hematologist and oncologist, been practicing in private practice for 20 years. And I'm joined by James Blatchley, who is an associate professor in the Ohio State University Division of Hematology. Hello there, Dr. Blatchley. How are you today? I'm great. I'm really excited to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, we appreciate your time and your expertise. So, Dr. Blatchley, uh, genomic medicine is a relatively new field and is changing constantly. Certainly, it is barely covered in medical schools, residencies, and fellowship training programs even today. What are some important background concepts we need to understand before we begin talking about genomic medicine and AML? There are a lot of uh, concepts that are common across the field of oncology and hematologic oncology, but in my view, AML has an unusually high reliance on understanding these concepts and the tests in order to make rapid high-impact decisions. Uh, We have included with the podcast a list of topics and definitions, but I just wanted to go over a couple of brief background items that I think are important, and if anything else comes up during the interview, we can go into more detail. The human genome, a copy of which is inherited from each of our parents and is identical throughout all the cells of our body, uh, may become mutated. It could be inherited with a mutation, or we could acquire a mutation sometime during our life, which would lead some cells to have different uh, copies of different genes. This could be, for example, a mutation in a lung cell in a smoker, or it could be due to a random mutation that happens in a bone marrow stem cell due to cosmic background radiation or prior chemotherapy or, again, just random chance. I think it's also important to know how do we test for these changes. So I'll briefly mention some key genomic tests, and then uh, there will be, as we said, more information available along with the podcast. Some of the most common tests that we use include conventional metaphase karyotype, which is also called cytogenetics, and FISH, or fluorescent in situ hybridization. The polymerase chain reaction, or PCR, is a very, very important test in genomic medicine and oncology. And finally, more recently, next-generation sequencing, it's abbreviated NGS, which is also called high-throughput sequencing, or HTS. Each of these tests provides information at a different level of detail or resolution, but also specificity. So, uh, for example, a metaphase karyotype could offer a resolution of 10 megabases or million bases of DNA, while FISH has visibility into a genomic aberration much smaller, about 200 kilobases. On the other hand, a karyotype shows an unbiased view of all your chromosomal abnormalities, uh, while FISH probes have to be selected by the ordering physician individually. 
Uh, similarly, high-throughput sequencing can detect individual mutations in a single base of DNA at approximately the 1% level across a large variety of locations, while PCR is limited to interrogation of a single locus, but with generally much higher sensitivity, probably less than 0.1%. And then I should also mention that there are some techniques, very relevant in AML, which we'll talk about later, that require the use of specialized PCR techniques, such as the FLT3 ITD, or internal tandem duplication detection by capillary electrophoresis, or quantitative measurement of measurable or minimal residual disease, which is abbreviated MRD by digital PCR. With that said, tell us how it all matters. In particular, can you give us specific examples of how treatment is informed by all these tests? Absolutely. So when a new patient is diagnosed with AML, it's important to quickly assess the types and varieties of genomic aberrations that they have. And We feel that uh, there's some minimal testing requirements for new AML patients. Historically, all patients have gotten a metaphase karyotype and FISH for specific abnormalities. FISH is really nice because it can yield relatively quick answers to some high-impact questions. For example, is there a translocation 1517 or PML-RARA fusion gene which causes APL or acute promyelocytic leukemia, that's an oncologic emergency and has to be managed immediately. A metaphase karyotype, on the other hand, can tell us about other gene fusions, whether or not we have fished for them. And some of those are really important in informing the treatment of the patient. For example, so-called core binding factor, AMLs, comprises uh, two different cytogenetic abnormalities, translocation 821 or inversion 16. It's very important to know that because those patients can be cured with chemotherapy alone in a specific course of intensive chemotherapy followed by high-dose ARC consolidation is, is very, very important. On the other hand, there are point mutations that we can detect with PCR or next-generation sequencing like NPM1 or CEBP-alpha, Uh, Mutations in those genes, again, confer a favorable risk profile to the patient, suggesting that they may be cured with chemotherapy alone and that you might not want to refer those patients for transplantation in a first remission unless there are extenuating factors such as patients over the age of 65 with NPM1. There's other changes that may not be so favorable, and it's also similarly important to know about those up front. I think one of the most notorious in AML would be the FLT3 gene. You can have either a point mutation called TKD or tyrosine kinase domain or an internal tandem duplication, ITD, of the FLT3 gene. And when you have a FLT3 aberration without an NPM1 mutation, those patients are considered poor risk. And in addition to being managed aggressively and referred for transplantation, that can inform treatment for these patients. There are now FDA-approved therapies specifically targeting the FLT3 gene, mitostarin and gilteritinib. There are other intermediate risk conditions that we might diagnose on, on the basis of genomic testing done up front, like mutations in IDH1 and 2, for which there are, again, FDA-approved targeted inhibitors that uh, could benefit patients. And I I should finally mention that there are also other very high-risk cytogenetic abnormalities and point mutations that 
may or may not influence treatment directly, but suggesting that the patient has a, a very poor prognosis informs the conversation that the oncologist needs to have with the patient. Everything you've mentioned so far is in the context of upfront treatment. What about other stages in the patient's treatment? Would we ever want to run these tests again? Are there other key tests that are used at different portions of the patient's journey, second line and beyond? That is a really great question. Overall, genomic testing remains the same with the addition of testing for MRD, which we previously mentioned was formerly called minimal residual disease, but we now refer to it as measurable residual disease. And testing for measurable residual disease is done with some of the same tests that we have already mentioned, PCR and high-throughput sequencing, can also be done by flow cytometry or immunophenotyping. Whether or not you're testing for MRD or whether or not you're just trying to understand whether your treatment has made a difference, it can be really important to look at the VAF or variant allele frequency or fraction of individual mutations over time. That can help you understand, have you eradicated high-risk clones that bear RAS mutations or FLT3 mutations? Is there a clone, for example, with a DNMT3A mutation? It's unlikely that that will go away. But we certainly want to track over the course of patient's treatment the VAF of individual mutations, typically using PCR or next-generation sequencing, to understand how the AML is responding to treatment. I should also add that there are also targeted inhibitors which are approved not in the upfront setting, but in the relapse refractory setting. And there are certain mutations which may not have been present at diagnosis again, like FLT3, which can emerge later at relapse. So continual testing is important for a variety of reasons. So I guess that answers the question. Mutations can change, they can go away entirely, or even new mutations can appear. Absolutely. So we therefore recommend a continuous program of testing at key time points, whether remission or relapse. When you were talking about tracking changes in the VAF, you mentioned MRD, Measurable Residual Disease. This is a concept we're hearing a lot about in oncology right now. What's the role in AML in particular? Um, How is it measured? What do you do with the information? Again, a, a great question. Very, very current. MRD is an exciting current area of research, both from a technical perspective, you asked how do we measure it, um, but also a practical perspective. What do we do with the information once we figure out how to measure it? MRD testing has been much clearer in AML's sister disease, ALL, for a substantially longer time because it's easier to measure an ALL cell given that they all bear a specific rearrangement at the IGH locus. AML, on the other hand, is a heterogeneous collection of diseases that really have in common arrested myeloid maturation, but that arrested myeloid maturation may be caused by a wide variety of mutations or cytogenetic abnormalities. So unlike ALL or CML, as another example, where we can measure BCR-able fusion, in AML, 
there are lots of different mutations which may or may not be present, and they may need to be tested in different ways. For example, a corbining factor patient with, let's say, inversion 16 might need to have the fusion transcript measured by conventional PCR. On the other hand, a patient with NPM1 would need to have the NPM1 mutation analyzed by digital PCR. And finally, a huge variety of patients with AML don't even have trackable mutations. And so we're currently working on technology to do so-called error-corrected next-generation sequencing to look across mutations. The most important thing I could say about what we do with this information is understanding whether or not somebody is going to relapse before they do and understanding who and who should not go to bone marrow transplant. We know that going to bone marrow transplant without detectable MRD overall leads to better outcomes. So there are a lot of tests, but I imagine that all the results don't come back that quickly. Do we really need to wait on these results before we start treatment? I mean, one of the things that we worry about, especially in the community, is how quickly can the AML evolve with hyperleukocytosis resulting in more patient problems or complications? I think you and I were trained under the same paradigm, which is that you don't let the sun set on a new case of AML without initiating treatment. But, you know, fortunately, in the era of genomic testing, we have some data that we can wait a little bit um, to let our testing be more genomically informed. Uh, there has been work from Christoph Rollig, published as an ASH abstract, as well as from the Beat AML study, showing that waiting for genomic results, perhaps for a week, doesn't in general negatively impact adult patients with AML. This is because adult AML is a heterogeneous disease. There are certainly some cases which blow up in the way that you have described, and those patients may need an emergency intervention. But many adults with AML have a rather slow-growing disease, and particular patients who had an antecedent MDS have a particularly slowly evolving disease. So I think it's important to pause and take a step back. And if you can get sequencing results in 7 to 14 days that show the patient, for example, has TP53 or karyotype that's complex coming back from your karyotype analysis, that patient may not benefit as much from intensive chemotherapy and may even be harmed by it. So overall, my recommendation is that we can wait. On the other hand, if the patient needs treatment right away, mitostorin is not started. Mitostorin is approved for FLT3 mutated AML. It's not started on day one. And so the patient could begin 7 plus 3 and start the targeted therapy later when the genomic testing results come back. Overall, I would say we don't need to rush and we need to be more thoughtful about directing our treatments and let them be genomically informed. Dr. Blatchley, we've covered a lot of information today, and it's clear that this field is moving quickly. I mean, the amount of advances that we've made with the evaluation, the diagnosis, um, the risk stratification, identifying unique factors that allow us to treat these conditions more precisely to help optimize outcomes. One of the things that I've noticed after having practiced in the community for nearly 20 years, I always want to get an academic expert involved ASAP. Preferably, I'd like to have the patients managed at their facilities ASAP. Um, It just seems to always work better for the patients. But um, with that being said, that's not always an option in some situations. But why don't we close things up by talking about the biggest changes in your opinion in the past five years? 
certainly you're right. Things have changed dramatically in the management of AML, and it's unrecognizable from when I started treating it about 10 years ago. We've always, or for a very long time, been able to test for most or all of these mutations, but we couldn't do anything about it. And in my opinion, the biggest change in the last five years was the sudden onslaught of regulatory approvals for new drugs in AML. Since 2017, we've had perhaps 10 or a dozen new approvals for drugs in AML, things like mitostorn, gilteritinib, ivocidinib, enosidinib, venetoclax, and others, which is a total change from either you get intensive chemotherapy or you may get a hypomethylating agent or you get hospice. And, you know, for 40 years, we really just had 7 plus 3 and then maybe later uh, azacitidine and decidabine hypomethylating agents. But now we have a whole menu of things from which to choose. But the important thing is that many of these treatment choices are genomically informed. Some of them target mutations directly. Others may work better in specific patient subsets, for example, magrolimab in patients with a TP53 mutation. And uh, I couldn't be more excited about the future of AML treatments. Thank you for listening to this episode of Genomics Essentials in Hematologic Malignancies, a discussion about AML therapeutic testing. We hope you found this discussion informative and engaging. Please tune in to our other podcast episodes for insightful discussions about ALL, MDS, CHIP, CLL, myeloma, and lymphoma. You can find the full list of podcast episodes at hematology.org and lls.org.